I wonder who's the best friend you ever had or have? Who is your best friend? I wonder if you remember back sometimes to being a child. Do you remember those friendships in those early years of kind of consciously making friends? I think the best friend I remember, a guy called Martin. Uh, Martin lives a few doors down from us, and his dad was a fireman. In the street we lived on back in the 70s, uh, the firemen all had the same colored garage doors. Who knew? So they all had blue garage doors. So you knew who the firemen were, because they all painted their garage doors the same color. And Martin lived down the road. His dad was a fireman. And I wanted Martin to become a Christian more than anything. I wanted to become a Christian, so I used to tell him about Jesus. And um, I used to tell him about Jesus until his mum phoned my mum and said, can Andrew please stop asking Martin to come to church because he doesn't want to come? To which my six-year-old self was pretty devastated at that point. thought, oh my goodness, that's, uh, that's, that's bad. What have I done? Um, anyway, years later, he and all his family became Christians wonderfully. And uh, he's still uh, walking with God many years later. In fact, his dad, interestingly, his dad was one of these guys who was a fairly hard-nosed guy. And his wife had become a Christian. His sons and daughters had become Christians. And he was quite angry about this. And one day he was uh, fitting a door frame into kind of the, the door uh, shape of a hole in the wall in his house. And you have to fit the frame in, and it's a wooden frame. And, and he was kind of getting annoyed with this, and he was annoyed with God. And so he said, okay, God, if you're there, make it fit. And it fitted at that moment. It just slotted in. And that's how he became a Christian. <laughs> so uh, who knew? Uh, different people's stories. Are different, but friendship. I want us to think about friendship today. And um, today we're looking particularly at the friendship between David and Saul, and David and Jonathan. So Saul was the king of Israel at this time. Uh, we've been looking at this story for a while now, and Jonathan was uh, Saul's son, so heir to the throne. Uh, and we're going to be looking at the first time we hear about David and Jonathan together. Relationships matter. Relationships matter because God is a God of relationship. Uh, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a God who exists eternally in relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They love each other. It's a perfect unity. In fact, we know them as one God. In fact, it's a, it's a mystery. One of the mysteries of Christianity. How can three be one? Uh, but that's what the Bible teaches. And that is a God of relationship. And he has made us to be in relationships. Now, most of us, most of the time, are pretty happy about that. There's very few people really in the world who want to be in absolute solidarity or absolute recluse. Uh, kind of that's not most of us. Most of us are pretty happy when we're in relationships of some sort. Uh, but how we conduct them, how we go about them is of, of real importance. And of course, the most important of all is our relationship to God uh, through Jesus. And we'll look at that just as we finish today. So I'm going to read a few verses from 1 Samuel 18, uh, just the first nine verses, and then we'll get into what they say. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, please speak to us. Lord, we thank you that your word is more than just a story or stories of people who lived a long time ago. But Lord, you say that your word is living and active. And we pray by your Holy Spirit, come and make this, these words, this, uh, this word live in us. Lord, we want to be different because we looked at your word today. And thank you. It's not just an agreement or disagreement with it, but it's an active work of your Holy Spirit in each of us as we hear these words. Amen. So the first few verses of 1 Samuel 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, 
Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and didn't let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the woman came out of the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres, just instruments. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Saul was angry and this refrain greatly displeased him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. We're going to see in this story, this little glimpse into the life of David and Saul and David and Jonathan, the difference between a sacrificial friendship and a selfish one. And we're going to look at three things that Saul did and three things that Jonathan did that really contrast in terms of how they related to David. We know, of course, that David was the boy king. He was anointed as, as king as a young boy in the fields looking after sheep. The prophet came and poured oil on his head and said, this is God's chosen king for this nation. We know that prior to that, the nation had gone after a king like the nations around. They had selfishly, jealously looked at the nations around and said, we want a king like they've got a king. And that jealousy within the nation led them to pick Saul as king. And Saul was a bad king. And Israel's history was uh, kind of peppered with occasionally a good king and then lots and lots of kings that didn't do as God wanted them. And Saul was a bit like this. He had a good start, but very quickly he became very self-centered. So that jealousy in the nation had uh, kind of grown up and the fruit of it had been a bad king. And they'd gone down the route of letting jealousy shape their choices. And it ended up with a king like Saul. And now we're going to see how that story develops. Before we do that, let's just read a couple of things. I'd like to read a quote from C.S. Lewis from his book called The Four Loves, uh, which is really worth a read. Anything by C.S. Lewis is worth a read, a famous Christian. And uh, this is what he said in that book. To love is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And then let's look at something that Paul wrote in Romans and chapter 12 when he's writing to that church, that great church in Rome. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. And don't be conceited. Paul is there kind of describing the family of God. What's it like to be in this family, this faith family, this community of the church? And he is talking about how do we relate to each other. That's really our theme today. What we're going to do now then is look at three things that Saul did and three things that Jonathan did and see how that leads us. But please keep those two quotes in mind as we do this. Firstly, what we see of Saul is we see Saul was jealous of David. We see that, don't we, as they were coming back from their victories. You remember David had slain Goliath, and after that, the uh, Israelite nation had kind of pushed the Philistines back out of their own country, and they'd won many victories along the way. The encouragement that it gave them, having seen Goliath felled by David, just kind of got into the heart of the nation, and they began to win many victories. And as they came back from these kind of battles, these campaigns, the women and the children, I guess, would have come out of the villages, and they were singing and dancing. must have been a tremendous sight. And they were singing, well, Saul, well, he's killed thousands. David, tens of thousands. And it got inside Saul's head, and he hated it. He, uh, he's like, well, what? why? Why only thousands for me and tens of thousands for David? He was jealous. And just remember what jealousy had done to the nation. And now jealousy is living inside the king himself. And that jealousy is going to take root and grow up and produce fruit in, in Saul's life. We can be quick to mourn with those who mourn. In fact, you don't have to spend very long with someone, even a stranger, before they tell you the troubles with their life. It's quite a quick thing for us to do, and as a pastor, I know that that's true. People will tell you things, might not tell you everything, but they'll tell you things they're struggling with quite, quite quickly, whether it's uh, kind of physical ailments or challenges in the home or whatever it might be, troubles at work. They'll tell you those things quite quickly. But in the passage we read there, we find that it is godly, and it's, 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 it's kind of in Jesus' way to rejoice also with those who rejoice. We find that really difficult to do. We find it a tough call, but easy to mourn with those who mourn. But my goodness, rejoice with those who rejoice. Saul's finding it hard right here. There's something to celebrate, but it's not his thing. There's something to, to have a party about, but it's not the thing he's done. And he's not doing it. Instead, rather than rejoicing with David as he's rejoicing, actually, it's a win for the nation. You know, the enemy has been routed. That's a, that's a win for everyone. But rather than celebrating it, he's like, it wasn't me. I didn't. He, he won. I didn't win. He's not able to rejoice with those who rejoice. He's not able to do it, and it's having a deep effect on him. As I said, it's easy to mourn with those who mourn, but what about this? What about throwing a party when somebody else wins? What about when someone gets an inheritance or a promotion or a bonus? We don't share it sometimes. We don't tell anyone. Why? Because we know how hard it is for people to rejoice with us when we rejoice. But listen, God's family can be that way. A win for one is a win for all. A challenge for one is a challenge for all. I would say, look, we, we're not brilliant at it. We can get better at it. But we are fairly good at mourning with those who mourn. But what about rejoicing with those who rejoice? That adds a zest, a flavor to life that is extraordinarily attractive to those around us. And it's something of who Jesus is, of course. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. Able to celebrate. Throwing a party when somebody else wins. 
It actually enhances it. You know, they said a problem shared is a problem halved, and there's some truth in that. That's a good thing to do. Go talk to people, particularly in our context. Let's, let's pray for one another. We're expecting God to come and help when we're mourning. But actually, what about God involved when we want to celebrate? There's something to be joyful about. Sharing that win enhances it for all of us. I want to encourage us in our connect groups and our friendships, our relationships. Let's be people who, yes, mourn with those who mourn. But the challenge to rejoice with those who rejoice is there as well. Actually, I think it takes something of God in us to do that. It takes the Holy Spirit within us to help us to celebrate the wins for one another. Of course, Saul is unable to do that. But let's read what David said in Psalm 20. And we, we kind of get both of these things here in, the, in these few verses. May the Lord answer you when you're in distress. Yep, I'm all, yep we can do that. We're, I'm praying that for you. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Yep, we're with you, David. May he send you help from his sanctuary. May he grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept all your burnt offerings. May he give you the desires of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Yes, we're with you. Then we will shout for joy when you are victorious. There's the challenge. Then we'll shout for joy when you are victorious. And we'll celebrate God who gave the victory. It gives us a zest, a flavor that is very attractive to those around us. And it's a challenge to us, a big challenge that God is setting before us. But rather than that, what you have in this king, this Saul, is, is that jealousy that he's brooding. He's kind of, he's nurturing it within him. I don't, well, David gets more praise than I get. That's not fair. I'm the king. He should, I, should, I, should, I should be the one. It should be me. And we kind of hear that little voice in each of us sometimes, don't we? We hear it, well, someone did better than, someone, I did that, and they got praise for it. You know, it's like, yeah, some of us even are aware of it. You see, jealousy in the nation, when jealousy had shaped the choices of a nation, had given them a bad king. Now, jealousy in the heart of a king is going to produce the fruit of attempted murder later in the story. These things have effect. It grows up, has fruit. He's nurturing. He's, he's kind of looking after this little hot ball of jealousy inside his heart. And it's going to grow up and have an effect. He's going to start trying to kill David before long. Why? Because he's unable to deal with jealousy in his heart. So Saul was jealous. Saul was also selfish. And this is even more serious. Really, he's a selfish king. He was selfish in his relationship with David. We don't know, we know that Saul doesn't really know how to deal with David. He can't rejoice with the victories of David and he's, he can't let him go, he can't keep him. What's he going to do with him? Well, what he does is he says, right, David, you've got to stay in court. You can't go home. And we read that early on in verse 2 in the passage we read. Now, is it an honor or a horror that David is not allowed to go home? Which is it? He's in this relationship with the king and he says, you can't go home. Now, is it an honor that David's allowed to stay in the court with the king? Or is it a horror that he's not allowed to go home to his family? Now, the nature of controlling relationships is exactly that. That's exactly a description of what a controlling relationship is, is like. Is it an honor or a horror? Which is it? I don't know. And that's the, the nature of the problem that some people find themselves in. I need to get out, but I, actually, I want to be in. I don't know. I was a primary school teacher, and... 
uh, very young children, often in the playground, like, you could be friends with him, but you can't be friends with him if I'm going to be your friend, and you know, if I'm going to be friends with her, then you can't be friends with her. Do you remember that? Some of you are parents are experiencing those kind of things right now. Now, normally we grow out of that as we get a bit older. Normally we don't conduct our relationships like that. I hope we don't. But sometimes it happens. Just, just to say, look, pastorally, if you're in a controlling relationship, then there's a pastoral team that can help you. You need to talk to someone. You need to do it now, today. You really do. It's serious. It's not right. And here in Saul, we see someone with a great deal of authority who's abusing his authority. You need to talk to someone. Please make sure you don't leave today before you do that. So he's jealous and he is selfish. The third thing we see about Saul's relationship with David is he is suspicious. He doesn't trust him. In verse 8 and 9, we read this, that he kept a close eye on David. He really was watching him. Now, David was incredibly loyal. He was just an incredibly loyal friend and actually a servant, as it were, as well as Saul. He, even when later in the story, when David gets a chance to kind of retaliate against Saul, he's, Saul is pursuing him later in the story in the verses to come. Saul is getting garrisons of soldiers together to try and kill him. He's chasing him through the, the countryside. And they find themselves together in a cave, and Saul doesn't know that David's also hiding in the back of the cave. David gets a chance to retaliate, to take Saul's life. He doesn't do it. He won't lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. David is loyal like no one else would have been loyal. But even though that is true, Saul is suspicious of him. He doesn't trust him. He won't let himself trust him. It seems a little bit like Saul is projecting his own character onto David. He's assuming that David is going to be a bit like him. He knows his own heart is full of these things, full of jealousy and rage and all sorts of suspicions, and now he's assuming that David is going to behave in the same way. And even though David isn't that way, this becomes a controlling moment in their relationship. There are a few things more damaging to a relationship than a lack of trust. We don't trust each other. When trust breaks down, it becomes extremely difficult to pursue that relationship. We second-guess the motives of others. That's really damaging. We're kind of, we're not really, I'm just, I'm not really believe you. I really trust you to be a friend. And often that breeds insecurity in a friendship and people will back off. Often when friendships break down, it's because there's been a breakdown in trust. And we find that here in that suspicion that Saul has of David, unfounded entirely. But there it is. We, we've, we've become quite a suspicious nation. And uh, you go online and uh, you kind of turn to YouTube, which I'm sure you do, but I don't advise it. The kind of onslaught of conspiracy theory that behind everything there's a kind of controlling, benevolent hand manipulating things behind the scenes and you're not being told the truth and we become extremely suspicious. We lack trust. Just to say as believers, what the Bible teaches is actually the hand behind it all is a loving father. That's what it teaches. That's a fundamental belief. Now, it doesn't mean that bad things don't happen. It doesn't mean that people don't have a level of human authority. They make bad choices and decisions, and they do, and we are affected by that. But the ultimate authority is with the Father. It's with God. He started it. He will end it. It's with him. 
We need to believe that. I just, as a pastor, I'm just saying, don't, it's easy to go down that route. You know, I'm sure no one is a flat earther here, but there are lots of people out there who genuinely just want, they just, the more conspiracy theories they can kind of absorb, the better for them, but actually, actually not. Trust is important for church, it's important for work, it's important for home, it's important for family, it's important for neighbours. Just how do we do that then? Well, the first thing, just a couple of points really before we move on to Jonathan's relationships with David, relationship with David, we find this, be a, just to, to, to foster trust, be a person of your word, just be someone who does what they say. We read in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't have to make great extravagant oaths. Just do what you say you'll do. If you say you'll be there, be there. If you say you'll do it, do it. This breeds trust in you personally, but in the church in general. Be a person of your word. It's a fairly simple thing, and yet often it's lacking. The second thing really would be aspire to trust others. And that could be a challenge, particularly if you've, if you've come a cropper with that in the past, where you've trusted and that trust has been abused, it's hard to trust again. But again, with God, we can find God will help us. Get prayer. Maybe that's something you want to respond to at the end of our time together. Be a person that aspires to trust. I'm going to say this too, this third thing. It could, it, I could qualify it a lot, but I want to just let it kind of hang there, and I'll let you qualify it in your own heart and mind. Better to trust and be wrong than to be suspicious and be right because of what it, does, what it says about your own heart. As I say, you could qualify that a lot because there could be some dangers in that. But think about what it says about your own heart. What's in here? What's inside me? Actually, I'm just suspicious of everyone. And we see someone like that when we look at, we look at Saul. He's just suspicious of everyone. And it's breaking down the relationships around him to the point where they're irredeemable. Okay, let's look upwards a bit. Let's start looking at Jonathan. Jonathan, of course, was Saul's son, heir to the throne. And he became a friend of David. We're going to look now at three things that Jonathan did in his relationship with David, three positive things, things for us to aspire to. The first thing we see here in verse 3 is this love that Jonathan had for David was a covenantal love. It was a covenant. It was a, a promise. We don't really do covenants, do we? If you, if you looked into the Old Testament, if you kind of went through a, 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 a Bible dictionary or a concordance, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times you would read about covenants. It's how they conducted life, often. They made promises to one another that were unbreakable. We hardly ever do that. We hardly ever make covenants at all, do we? we do, I mean, try and think of one. You, you hardly ever do it. The only thing I can think of is when you, when you take out a mortgage and suddenly it all gets really serious. Has anyone done that lately? My goodness, how much, how much paperwork to fill in, how many questions to answer, how much do you want to know about my life before you'll lend me some money? My goodness me, it's incredible. But covenants were very familiar to the people in the stories that we've been reading there in the Old Testament. So what is a covenant? Well, we should just quickly identify what that is. It's a solemn and binding agreement between two parties. In fact, it's so solemn that it's only breakable by death. That's, that's what a covenant is. You can't get out of a covenant. It's a promise that you can't break. And that's why it's called something different than just a promise. Because we tend to think, certainly in our culture, promises are a bit easy come, a bit easy go. 
well, I'm going to be there. And then we phone, actually, I've got a better deal, so I'm going somewhere else. Uh, whereas a covenant is an unbreakable promise between two living parties. The Bible, of course, we know is loosely split into two covenants. We know there's an old covenant, there's an old way of relating to God, and then through Jesus, there's a new way of relating to God. That's kind of loosely, there's actually more than one covenant in the Old Testament, but loosely speaking, it's an old and a new. And it's a solemn agreement that God has made to love and care for us, to forgive us. It's, a, it's an unbreakable promise that he's made. There's other promises in the Bible, and the one other kind I'd like us to look at, uh, or very briefly, is this. A testament. Now we think of the Old Testament, the New Testament. What is a testament? Well, when you add the first bit in, the last will and testament. And what is a will? What is a testament? Well, it's what, it's what it suddenly becomes active when somebody dies. All the time that people are alive, a will is just a thing. It's just a bit of paper. But when someone dies, now it becomes law. It becomes enacted. And both of those things we find in the Bible, we find a covenant and we find a testament, a promise based on a living party and a, a, a promise based on somebody dying, both there in the Bible. As I say, we're very easy come, easy go with promises often. And as we said, we don't talk about covenants much, but when was the last time you scrolled through all the terms and conditions and just clicked, yeah, I agree, at the bottom? Has anyone ever read all the stuff? On any, no one has ever read the whole thing. I've read every word. Yep, read, agreed. We can be just easy come, easy go with our promises. Yeah, I promise to do that. Yeah, I'll, I agree to all that stuff. Um, I don't think they really, well, I'm assuming they don't expect us to read all that. Maybe someone who writes this stuff thinks we do read it all, but I'd be very surprised. Keeping promises is fundamental to human interaction. We need to be people of our word, people of our promise. In fact, the only covenant outside of our one with God that the Bible really promotes, not asking us to go and make covenantal promises with all your friends in the room, is marriage. It says, here's a covenant, and when you promise to marry someone, when you stand in front of God and in front of a group of your friends and people and a, you know, a preacher or whoever, and you say, I promise, I solemnly promise to love you until what? Until death parts us. That's what a covenant is. That's what it is, an unbreakable promise. Paul pushes that further when he writes uh, to the church in Ephesians and says, actually, that level of promise, that's like Christ and the church. He says, your marriage is a living metaphor for how God loves the church, unbreakable, can't be broken. That's how much God loves you, how much he cares for you. The second thing we see about Jonathan's relationship with David is this, it's a sacrificial love. We see that in verse 4. Um, if we consider who Jonathan was, and we see that the promise he made to David was covenantal, that serious, unbreakable promise, we now see that it was also sacrificial. Jonathan was heir to the throne. Everything that was Saul's, the kingdom, the wealth, the crown, the adulation, the armies, were all coming to Jonathan by rights. Now, when the king died, that's the nature of a will, isn't it? When the king died, it all would be Jonathan's. And what does Jonathan do? to his friend David. Well, Jonathan, he takes off his tunic, he takes off his cloak, he takes off his sword and his belt, and he gives them to David. And we see that in the Bible, when that kind of thing happens, we saw it with Elijah and Elisha, we see it in other places too, where someone, he's passing on, he's saying, I know it's with you. I know the promise is really with you. 
And I'm demonstrating that I'm agreeing with that by giving you these things, by giving you these things. And we, you know, we tend to think, well, I've got a wardrobe full of stuff. You could take a couple of my coats and you probably wouldn't notice for a year. But actually, that's not the nature of these things. These were very linked to who the person was and the position that they held. The tunic, the cloak, the sword, the belt. It was very much everyone in the nation would know that's Jonathan's. That belongs to the son of the king. And he's giving those things to David. It's a sacrificial love. He's giving of himself for the sake of another. Again, important. Something that we need to learn. It's the nature of sacrificial love. Demonstrated, obviously, in who Jesus is. To love, you have to give something of yourself. We read that in that C.S. Lewis quote, didn't we? You have to give something of your own heart to someone else. Yeah, it's a risk. Of course it is. But that's how you love. I know we talked a lot with the guys who do the marriage course here in the church. We tend to think of love give and take, isn't it? Isn't love give and take? Isn't that what we believe? Absolutely, fundamentally not. You cannot take love. You can only receive love. You can only be freely given and freely received. In other words, it has to be freely offered. That's beautiful, actually. And then you can receive it. You can't take it. That's not love to take it from someone. Given and received. And you see it here in Jonathan and David. He's giving something precious, sacrificing something that was his for the sake of a friend. Thirdly, we see that it was a generous love. And of course, that's caught up in the other two. Um, Jonathan gives the kingdom. He's giving up the authority, the position to David. He's making that covenantal promise to do that. I'm with you till death, David. Whatever it takes, I know my father's after your blood, but I'm here, I am not going away, and I'm promising my life on it. That security of friendship and love. You know, if we're going to take risks in faith together, we need something of that generous love together. Uh, When we were in Mozambique, and uh, Woody and I were there a couple of weeks ago, we we met this uh, community of faith, people that we know and love, people from here, who are, it's all on the line. It's home, it's money, it's it's their families, it's it's everything. It's all on the line, trusting God. The level of trust you have to have in one another, the level of sacrifice you have to have for one another is very high if you want an adventure of faith. It's part of the package. Can't do it on your own. We need each other to do that, and we see that there. Of course, we see more of this sacrificial love than anywhere else in Jesus himself, and of course, that's where we were headed today. So let's look at the passage in, one, in, two, in Philippians chapter 2. Again, Paul is writing, saying, this is how Jesus was, this is how you should be in your relationships. Let's read it, Philippians 2, very famous passage. In your relationships with one another, have this same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Didn't use his position to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Being, uh, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus um, every knee would bow, and heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the glory of God the Father. We see the ultimate example of a loving relationship in how Jesus relates to us. We see it in, 
We see it in Jonathan and David. We see how not to do it in Saul and David. And here we see our prime example in Jesus himself. Now, he wasn't just the son of a king. He was the son of the king, Jesus. All, everything is all his. The, the cosmos belongs to him. And yet, what does he do? He makes himself nothing. He takes off his robes so that we could be clothed. You see, Jonathan gave David his cloak Jesus was stripped naked so you could be clothed in what? In righteousness. It was just a passing on of clothes from Jonathan to David. Here, Jesus is giving you something much more precious. He's giving you his righteousness. The thing that you need to stand before God that you don't have, that you can't earn, that you can't find anywhere, that you can't, there's nothing you can do to get it, and yet you desperately need it. He dies so you can have it. And he's stripped naked on the cross so you can be clothed so that you will never be exposed like he was exposed. Jesus gives it to you. Why? Because he loves you sacrificially, covenantally, and generously. He loves you and cares for you. Jonathan gave up his position as heir to the throne. Jesus gave up his life so that you could inherit what was his by rights. And what was his was the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the place where God rules supreme. To live a life knowing that the king of your life is the king of the cosmos. He gives up his life so that you can have it. So that you can know that. That you can be certain. You can be sure. Jonathan and David's promise was sealed with an earthly covenant. They made the best promise they knew how to make. Jesus' promise was sealed with his own blood. How much does he love you? How certain can you be? of his care for you. The Bible says this, how would, if he's given you Jesus, how would he not graciously, along with him, give you all things? It's like, hey, do you need convincing? Look at Jesus. Do you need convincing that, that he loves you? Look at Jesus, giving you the most precious thing in all the universe. If he give you that, how would he hold anything back? It would be ridiculous that, to think, to doubt him. How could he hold anything back? He's given you his dear son, and he does it willingly. It's relevant for now. He's doing it now. Right now. He's saying, I love you. I care for you. I'm for you. Just come, bring all your rubbish to me. I'll, get, I'll deal with it. Come repent. Come turn. Turn from your sin. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm at your side. And it was great to pray for these guys. As, you know, for John and Natasha as they go off. And it's great to stand behind them. Just put hands on their shoulders and say, we're with you. We're absolutely with you. We, we, we're, we're with you. We're happy that this is happening. We rejoice with you. And a little bit like that, when God's, God's at your shoulder, hand on your shoulder, with you, championing you, shouting your victory. He wants that for you. Let's just read this. Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 12. Consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even in Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, are you of little faith? Don't set your hearts on what you eat and drink. Don't worry about it. The pagan world runs after all this stuff. Your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Don't be afraid, little flock, says Jesus. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
There's your inheritance right there. It's his good pleasure to give it to you. Sealed both in a covenantal promise, unbreakable except through death, sealed in an inheritance that is actioned by his own death. And of course, what we have in Jesus is someone who died and rose to life. Both the covenant and the inheritance are relevant. They both work because of Jesus' death and resurrection. You, you get both. You get an inheritance and you get a covenant promise that he will give you his kingdom. You get to be part of it. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the extent to which you have loved us. Thank you that you care about our relationships one to another. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for anyone who is struggling in that area at all, I pray, would you help them? I pray, Father, guide them and lead them. I pray where people need to be healed, where they've been hurt, I pray, would you do that? Where people need to have courage, I pray you give it to them. I ask, Father, for your strength. And Father, we thank you more than all of that, that you have set your love upon us in Jesus. Thank you for demonstrating what real love was when you sent us your dear son. Thank you for showing the nature of sacrifice, to give up on yourself so that we could share in your inheritance. We thank you, Jesus. Amen.